have seen the sign, Jesus plus nothing here. Uh, it's pretty hard to miss. And that means we're going to be teaching out of the book of Galatians. So if you want to grab either your phone or your Bible, or if you grab the Bible in the bench, you can turn to page 942. And uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Galatians. And uh, this is going to be the series that we're going to walk through throughout the summer. So we're get, just giving you a... Uh, today I get to introduce it all, but uh, basically throughout the summer we're going to be talking about Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. The book of Galatians um, has had huge historical impact on all of Western society. In fact, it's had huge society impact on the world, but uh, historians will, are able to trace it back and say there's been moments where the book of Galatians totally transformed societies and cultures. A couple probably of the biggest moments, one was Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a, a monk, you know, a Roman Catholic monk living in Germany. And uh, I won't tell you his whole story, but as he read the book of Galatians, he began to realize that the way that the church was operating wasn't the way that the Bible described uh, the way that God wants to interact with people and the way that God wants to work in the world. And so I, I, I won't get into all of it, but the book of Galatians was one of the parts of the Bible that had such a, an incredible impact on Martin Luther. And out of Martin Luther's um, um, change that this book brought to him, out of the change of thinking and the change of seeing things, uh, we have uh, the Lutheran Church, obviously, Martin Luther, Lutheran, but we have all the Protestant churches that exist today, which is the branch that we come out of. That's us. So all these churches, the radical shift happened in the, in the church in the world at that point through Martin Luther. Martin Luther went on to write uh, a commentary on the book of Galatians, and a couple hundred years later, um, 1730, or maybe not quite a, 200 years later, but in 1730, uh, a man named William, uh, let me get, make sure I got his last name right, um, William Holland was hanging out with his friends, and they were all seeking God, and this is in England now, okay, so not Germany, but now we're in England, they were all seeking God, and uh, his, he had two buddies who were brothers, uh, Charles and John, and Charles and John Wesley would go on to form the Methodist Church, and uh, because of the revival that happened during the time of John and Charles Wesley, which was we often call the Great Awakening, um, hundreds of thousands of people were swept into following Jesus on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, in England and in Europe and in America and, and North America. Uh, hundreds and thousands of people um, uh, came to, to faith in Christ, uh, were swept into churches, um, planted new churches, all sorts of great things, incredible things happened out of these few friends that gathered together. And you know what they were doing? William had gotten a copy of Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he said, we should read this together. And so Charles Wesley, in, in one of the meetings, Charles Wesley was reading it out loud. And this is, this, I'm just going to read you uh, William's experience. William said, he's reading... He's not even reading the main uh, part of the book. He's just reading the preface, like the introduction. You know that part of the book where you always skip when you read a book? He's reading that. And in it, 
uh, Martin Luther is basically summarizing the gist of, of uh, what he's going to talk about in the rest of the book. And he says, as they were reading that, he says, at a certain point there came, this is Charles Wesley reading, but then uh, William uh, Holland, is, this is what he wrote about his experience when he heard Charles Wesley read it. He said, at a certain point there came such a power, such a power came over me as I cannot well describe. My great burden fell off in an instant. My heart was so filled with peace and love that I burst into tears. I almost thought I saw my Savior. My companions, when they saw me, were so affected, they fell onto their knees and they prayed. And when afterwards I went into the street, I could scarcely feel the ground beneath my feet. Now, Holland did what everyone does when they find something fantastic. He went and told everyone about it. He took the commentary, Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, and he, every night he would find somebody in their house and he'd read the preface to them. <laughs> and maybe you don't do that when you're that excited. Maybe you're a little more contained, but he did that. And uh, it was, historians believe that it was actually while Holland was reading to John Wesley, the other brother, Luther's preface to Galatians, that uh, John Wesley said the famous words that were sort of indicative of his conversion. He said, my heart was strangely warmed and I felt that I did trust Christ. And uh, the great awakening began out of the work of John and Charles Wesley, but it was William Holland who insisted that his buddies read Galatians and read Martin Luther's commentary on it. So Galatians... Um, is a book about the gospel. When we read Galatians, you'll see the word gospel coming up again and again. Gospel, which means good, work, good news. Gospel is good news, and it's the good news about Jesus. And uh, the gospel in this book is really, it's written as a, a book for Christians. Galatians is a book written to Christians. So some people might think, hey, well, the gospel, that's, real, that's the good news about Jesus. That's for people who aren't Christians yet. So that's a really good thing to tell people who aren't Christians yet. But then once you become a Christian, then you need more, you know, more mature stuff, more significant stuff. The gospel's sort of like, you know, giving milk to a baby, but like once you become a Christian, then you need more meaty stuff, more significant stuff. But the reality is the gospel is what Christians and non-Christians need. It's what we all need. It's what everybody needs. Uh, it's just important for Christians as it is for non-Christians. If you're confused as a Christian, if you're sliding back into bad habits as a Christian, if you're struggling with suffering as a Christian, whatever your issue is, you need the gospel. You need the good news about Jesus. And so I want to begin to read, and we'll read a few verses, and we'll do some commentary along the way. But uh, we're in, we're in uh, reading a, his, a very significant uh, part of the Bible, and, uh, and I want to just give you a sense of the gravity of how it's transformed our world already, and yet there are many lives yet to be transformed by the message in, inside of it. So Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Now, in all of Paul's letters, and there's a bunch of them in the New Testament, he always 
in his introductions, says something he's thankful about for the people he's writing to, except for this letter. This is the one barn burner of a letter that's just straight up confrontation. You know how they say that, you know, if you're going to say some, some word of critique to somebody, you should first say seven nice things? Have you heard that? So say seven positive things before you say, and, but by the way, I got to say, or the, tell, you know, Paul is not going to go, he's not saying seven nice things about the Galatians. Now, who are the Galatians? It was actually a number of churches. It'd be like saying uh, the letter to the Saskatchewanians or whatever. <laughs> it's not just like written to one church. Like the book of Corinthians is written to one church. But this is written to a whole bunch of churches in an area called Galatia, like a province. And it's written to all of them. And the reason it's written to all of them because they all have the same problem. And we're going to learn about that in, we've got a video here to show you, to give you the context. We always like giving the context when we're going to go dive into an entire book of the Bible. So uh, we're going to pull up this video here for you, and it'll under, help you understand a bit of the problem that Paul was facing. It'll give you a picture of what's to come yet in the book, and then we'll come back to chapter one. So can we roll that, uh, roll that video there? Paul's letter to the Galatians. It was written to a number of churches in the region of Galatia where Paul had traveled on one of his missionary journeys. You can read the stories in the book of Acts. He wrote this important letter from a place of deep passion and frustration. Here's the backstory. Christianity began as a Jewish messianic movement in Jerusalem, but its message was for all humanity, and so it quickly spread beyond Israel. By Paul's time as a missionary, there were as many non-Jews as there were Jewish people in the Jesus movement, and this sparked a huge debate that we know about from the book of Acts chapter 15. Historically, the covenant people of God were focused in one ethnic group, Israel, and they were set apart by the practices commanded in the Torah, like circumcision of males, eating kosher, observing the Sabbath. And there were many Jewish Christians who believed that for all of these non-Jews to truly become a part of God's family, they needed to obey the laws of the Torah. And so some of these Jewish Christians ended up coming to the Galatian churches. They were undermining Paul and demanding circumcision of all these male non-Jewish Christians. And so many of them were. And when Paul found out, he was brokenhearted and angry. And this letter is the result. He first challenges the Galatians with his summary of the gospel message about the crucified Messiah. He then argues that this gospel is what creates the new multi-ethnic family of Jesus and Abraham. And then he shows how this gospel is what truly transforms people by the presence and power of the Spirit. He opens by expressing his bewilderment that the Galatians have embraced a different gospel. It's the one promoted by these Christians who badmouth Paul and demand circumcision. So Paul first defends the authenticity of his message and authority as an apostle. He was commissioned by the risen Jesus himself to go to the non-Jewish world. Remember the story from the book of Acts. Paul says it was only later that he went to Jerusalem to consult the other apostles like Peter or James. And when he told them he wasn't requiring non-Jewish Christians to be circumcised or eat kosher, they were in full support. But this tension ran deeper. Peter had come to Antioch to visit and see all of these non-Jewish Christians, and he was eating and mingling with them. But when some of this Jerusalem opposition group showed up in Antioch, Peter caved under their pressure. He stopped eating with these uncircumcised Christians, and he was avoiding them. 
And so Paul confronted and accused Peter of hypocrisy, of not staying true to the gospel. For Paul, demanding these new Christians to become circumcised and Torah observant, it's wrong-headed for all kinds of reasons. First of all, because it's a betrayal of the gospel. Or in his words, people are not justified by the works of the Torah, but rather by the faith of Jesus the Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah Jesus. To be justified, or literally to be declared righteous, it's a rich Old Testament term for Paul. It's when God declares that someone is in a right relationship with him. They're forgiven, they're given a place in God's family, and they are being transformed by God's grace. And it's Paul's conviction that no one can be justified by observing the commands of the Torah, but only by the faith of Jesus. This is a dense phrase, and it could refer to Jesus' own faithfulness in living and dying on our behalf, or it could refer to our own trust and devotion to Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. People are justified only through trusting in what God did for them through Jesus, not by what they do for themselves. At the heart of Paul's gospel is this claim, that when people trust in the Messiah Jesus, what's true of him becomes true of them. His life, death, and resurrection become theirs. Or in his words, I've been crucified with the Messiah, and it's not I who come back to life, it's the Messiah living in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the reason anyone can say that they are right with God or belong to Jesus' covenant family, it's not because they obeyed the laws of the Torah. It's only because of what Jesus did for them that they could never do for themselves. Now, this profound understanding of what Jesus accomplished, it has huge implications for who can now be included in God's covenant family and for what it means to live as a member of that family. So Paul first turns to the stories about Abraham in Genesis, how he was justified or declared righteous before God by simply having faith, by trusting in God's promise that one day all nations would find God's blessing through him and his offspring. God's purpose was always to have one large multi-ethnic family of people who relate to him on the basis of faith, not on the laws of the Torah. But that raises an important question. Why did God give the laws of the Torah to Israel then? Here Paul offers a very brief and dense explanation that he will later fill out in his letter to the Romans. He observes that the laws of the Torah were given to Israel at Mount Sinai long after God's promise to Abraham. And if you read the Torah carefully, he says, you'll see that God always intended the laws to be a temporary measure. He says the laws had both a negative and a positive role. Negatively, the laws acted like a magnifying glass on Israel's sin. They exposed how Israel shared in the sinful human condition, constantly rebelling against God's law. And so the law, which is good, ended up pronouncing Israel guilty and all humanity with them. Or in his words, the laws imprisoned everyone under the power of sin. But the laws also had a positive role. They acted like a strict school teacher that kept Israel in line until the coming of the promised offspring of Abraham, the Messiah. And once the Messiah came, he fulfilled the purpose of the laws on Israel's behalf. Jesus was the faithful Israelite who truly loved God and neighbor. And as Israel's king, he died to take the curse and consequence of Israel's failure into himself and bring redemption. And so now through Jesus, the offspring of Abraham, God's blessing can come to all people regardless of their ethnicity, social status, or gender. 
For Paul, requiring Torah observance from non-Jewish Christians, it makes no sense. It's acting as if Jesus didn't fulfill God's promise or deal with our sins. It neglects the new freedom gained for us through Jesus and the gift of the Spirit, and it limits God's promise and blessing to one ethnic family. But, Paul's opponents might argue, the laws of the Torah, they're a proven guide to living according to God's will. How will non-Jewish Christians learn this? Paul responds in chapters 5 and 6 by describing how Jesus' transforming presence through the Spirit is the key. The laws of the Torah are good. They're wise, Paul says. In fact, they can all be summarized, as Jesus did, in the command to love your neighbor as yourself. But the laws, good as they are, they did not give Israel the power to obey them. In contrast, the good news is that Jesus did fulfill the laws on our behalf, and now he lives in us through the Spirit, making his people into new humans who fulfill the law by loving others. So Paul goes on to contrast this old and new humanity. The habits of the old humanity are obvious. These are behaviors that dehumanize people, they destroy relationships and whole communities. And while the laws of the Torah prohibited these behaviors, Jesus actually put them to death on the cross. So when a person trusts in Jesus and lives in dependence on the Spirit, his life becomes theirs and produces what Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit. This is Jesus' way of life that he wants to reproduce in his family so that they become people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But this fruit isn't automatic, Paul says. It requires cultivation just like real fruit. Or in his words, if we live by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. This requires intentionality. We have to learn how to prune off our old habits and cultivate new ones. And as we do so, we find ourselves carried along by the Spirit as Jesus reshapes our minds and hearts and makes us into people who love God and others. And in this way, Jesus' people fulfill what Paul calls the Torah of the Messiah. In the end, Paul concludes, this requirement for Christians to become Torah observant or be circumcised, it's an adventure in missing the point. What really matters is God's new creation, this new multi-ethnic family of the Messiah, people full of faith in Jesus who are learning to love God and others in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the letter to the Galatians is all about. All right, there's a lot in that. I realize there's a lot in that. That's why it's going to take us all summer to go through Galatians. But I know some, for some people, you get that picture out there. It gives you a great overview, and you go, oh, right, I've thought of some of those things, and now I see how some of them are connected. So that's really good. So let's jump into the angry part of the letter, okay? Wouldn't that be fun? Let's read the angry part, okay? I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I am astonished. <laughs> astonished. He could use different words for that, and different translations use different words. But why is Paul so astonished, or let's get down to it, why is he so upset? Why is he angry? Because he, for Paul, and he says this in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God. It's the power of God. It's what can save a person from their sin. It's a, what can transform their life. And a, a, a gospel that's, um, that's not the true gospel does not have that power. 
It can't transform. It can't save. He says, I'm, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. This isn't sort of like um, you can have lots of different flavors. It's not like Coke and Cherry Coke, and you sort of say they're both Coke, although is Cherry Coke really Coke? It's a cherry drink. I don't know. Anyhow, this is like pure Coke. Coke purists will say Cherry Coke is not Coke. They'll say Diet Coke's not Coke, Coke Zero, Coke Green, whatever that stuff is. What, Green Coke? I don't know. Anyhow, all those different types, they'll say, no, 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 those aren't Coke. There's the original classic Coke. If you're a purist about Coke, that's how you'll think. Uh, Paul is an absolute, he's absolutely adamant about the need for the gospel to be pure, for the gospel to be true. He's saying, you can't shift it two degrees and it still be the gospel. You can't add stuff to it and it's still the gospel. You can't, you, can, you can't adopt it and say, well, this is a different version of the gospel and it's still the gospel. He says, those are all no gospel at all. He says, in fact, he says, when you do that, you're deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. You're deserting the one. This isn't just about... Um, changing your mind about certain principles and precepts, although that's part of it. It's actually deserting the one. You, when you desert the gospel or the, the truth, the good news about Jesus, you are deserting the one. You, God himself became a carpenter. He did all that he did. When Jesus lived and died, he did all of that because he loves you and me. And when that truth begins to melt your heart, it's natural to turn around and love him back. Now, if you had a different gospel message, it would sound differently than that. In other religions in the world, they have uh, ways to get to God. Uh, for example, some other religion might have a, a way of framing it. They might say, well, God loves me for what I'm doing for him. But Christianity is not like that. Christianity is God loves me. Jesus died for me. He dealt with sin. It's because, what of Jesus, it's because of what Jesus has done. And then, when that melts your heart, people say, oh wow, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live for you. I'm going to trust in what you've done, and I'm going to live for you. The Jesus, this Jesus plus nothing series is all about trying to figure out the ways in which our own hearts try to twist the gospel. Try to change it, try to add to it, try to say, well, Jesus plus something else. Just like in this scenario, Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus is great, but just add these Jewish traditions and observance of the Torah law. What, you're Greek, you're Roman? Well, you need Jesus plus a good dose of Hebrew culture. But Paul is so upset about this because he says once you add something to the gospel message, it's not the gospel anymore. It's not the gospel anymore. Here's another phrase. Let me just read 
another phrase to you here. It says, which is evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Pervert the gospel of Christ. Now, pervert, I often think of pervert as like, you know, well, that's perverted or, or that's really twisted. But a good way to also think of it is to pervert something is just to reverse it. Now, how do you reverse the gospel? How do you take the good news about Jesus and reverse it? Well, let me ask you this. Does God love you, and as a result, you love him and lead a good life? I think that's what the gospel, you know, I'm really boiling it down, but God loves you, and as a result, you love him and you lead a good life. Or, let's reverse it. Do you love God and lead a good life, and therefore, as a result, God loves you? You say, it's all the same ingredients. But one has got the cart before the horse, and the other one's got the horse in front of the cart like it should be. And, because, and one of them is, is dead wrong. The word pervert means, it means, in this context, it means to reverse. It means to turn inside out. You see, someone might say, well, I've lived a good life. And therefore, I've received the grace of God. And that's a reversal of the gospel. The gospel says, I've received the grace of God, and therefore, I live a good life as a response to what he has done. It matters what the order is. Which part of the proposition is the root, and which part is the fruit? And the way that... Um, we, we put those things in our... Let, okay, let me give you two really big theological words. If you went to Bible college, they're, they're, they're 101. But if, for most of us, they're big. Justification and sanctification. Justification is, is how God makes us righteous in his sight through the work of Jesus. And sanctification is how the Holy Spirit continues to work in our lives to make us holy like God. And which comes first? Which comes first? Does anyone know? Justification. Justification comes first. And sanctification comes afterwards. But you know what? I'm amazed at how many times in my own life I have a tendency to want to put them in the opposite order. See, this is a sermon series for all of us. You say, well, this is good that we're just tackling the basis of the gospel, but I understand the gospel. Do you? Do I? Because our own hearts can tend to put those things in the wrong order. You say, well, you know what? What are you trusting in that you're, you're right with God? What are you trusting in? Am I trusting in God's work of justification? Or am I trusting in my own efforts? Am I trusting in my own good behavior? Am I trusting in my track record? Am I trusting in an experience I had when I was six years of age? That's when I first prayed to God and told him he could have my life. Am I trusting in that? Am I trusting in my performance? What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in something I did or am I trusting in something that Jesus did? And I think that's the thing is sometimes we just, we just turn it around and we say, you know what? It's Jesus plus my performance, Jesus plus my good behavior, Jesus plus my spiritual report card. It's report card season, isn't it? What if you could take your spiritual report card and hold it up to God and say, hey, look at how good I've been. Do you like me now? It might work with your parents if you had straight A's on your report card. But you know what? You, you can't hold up a, a list of your performance to God and say, 
and he'll say, wow, you've really earned it. You've earned my acceptance, you've earned my love, you've earned my righteousness. No, it doesn't work that way. It's God gives us, through Christ, access to the Father. Before we respond in any way. Now, you have to receive, you have to trust, those are parts, but it's not, it's not doing it's that you come to see that that is what you need. And you receive, right? When I, you know, when it's my birthday and, you know, my wife and kids they bring thousands of presents. <laughs> if they remember it's my birthday. Anyhow. Uh, anyhow. What do I have to do? Well, you say you have to unwrap the presents. Well, really, some of them aren't even wrapped. You know, they're in garbage bags or what. You know how, you know how gift giving goes in some houses. Maybe your house is much more pristine than that, but ours is really real. It's like, hey, I, Dad, I gave you this. And what do I have to do? All I have to do is receive it. I really don't have to do anything, right? They can even put it on the table in front of me, and it's mine. Oh, thanks. What is it? It's awesome. It's great. To as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. So as many as receive Christ. So what do we do? Receive. Receive. Now there's a, there's a, there is a process that works, and, I'm not, and I don't understand it all, but let me talk to you about illumination. Okay, illumination. This is a big, a big word. And I, the, for me, the uh, in interaction I had with a pastor uh, back in the, early 90s was sort of the moment when I realized how much illumination is a thing. And he had gone to uh, uh, college, basically, to become a pastor and studied the Bible and other books and uh, then ended up being a pastor. And uh, then one night he's watching the Billy Graham crusade, and as he's watching it, he, Billy Graham's talking about you must be born again and God's going to do this work through the Holy Spirit to make you a new person. And then he realizes that has never happened to me and suddenly this is what I need and, he be, and, and that becomes the first moment where he trusts Jesus. That what Jesus did on the cross, what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection was exactly what he needed and it wasn't anything he did but it was all about Jesus and at that moment he got down on his knees, he prayed a prayer, but really the prayer is just the bonus. He trusted Jesus for the first time in his life. Now, he told me this story. I, I was staying in his house, he told me this whole story. He said he got up to uh, speak the next week. This is what he did every week. He does what I do, right? He'd get up and he'd speak and he started say, seeing the Bible, which he'd seen before, and he'd had read these same verses before, but now they're jumping off the page at him because there's illumination. Illumination. It's like God sheds a spiritual light on the words of Scripture and you suddenly understand. Or maybe a word that you've heard before, suddenly it comes back to your mind, but it doesn't come back to your mind in the same way. Suddenly you realize oh, the truth about Jesus. Let me give you, so let, let me give you an illustration. Let's say you're, uh, you're part of the Joe's Place group that's going to go to a uh, youthquake, okay? And so you might have this experience where some students would go to Youthquake 
have an awesome time, it would be great, and they listen to the speakers, and someone would talk about Jesus and the gospel, and then their hearts would respond, and they'll suddenly go, wow, I trust Jesus, and I've never felt such peace and love, and it's amazing, and I can't believe it, and what God has done in my life. And some of the workers who brought them there go, man, I shared the gospel with them 10 times. <laughs> and they had to come to Youthquake to become a Christian. Huh. But then there's other students, and they go to Youthquake, and they're like, this was great. I really liked it. The lights, the sounds, the music, the good times, no sleep. It was an awesome experience. And then two weeks later, they're back at Joe's place in a Bible study, and suddenly they go, Wow, I get it. I understand it. I realize I need this. I need to give Jesus my life. I need to trust him. I trust Jesus. I'm changed. And you say, well, what, what happened? How come these two different scenarios? Well, you know, it isn't the, it isn't the, the place. It isn't uh, a certain setting. It's the fact the Holy Spirit brought words to life. I, I heard this story about um, uh, these, these uh, a bunch of guys were all looking to plant churches, I mean start new churches in North America, and they gathered together in this setting, and they were first to get up and tell their story. And so guys, and, and a common theme came out. Guys would say, man, I've been so impacted by the gospel, I need to take it wherever I go. I've been so impacted by the gospel, I need to take it wherever I go. When were you impacted by the gospel? They said, man, I, I, was, I was 15, and I heard someone speak and, or share this with me, and it was like I'd never heard it before. I don't know why nobody in my church ever told me this before, but I suddenly heard it. And then another guy shared, he said, yeah, I was 22, and I'd gone to church my whole life, but then somebody talked to me, or I had heard a speaker or something like this, and I, suddenly I never heard the gospel before, but then I finally heard it. And uh, some of the older guys who were listening to them, they began to laugh. And they were like, really? You never heard the gospel before? Never heard the gospel before? And the kicker was this one guy. So the one guy who was an older saint and an older leader, he got up and he told them a story. He said, I was teaching this young guy in, in a Bible college setting. And one of the courses, we were using Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians. And uh, he had read through and studied through the whole commentary and wrote papers on it and whatever, and he got done, and then it was like the next semester, he realized his need for Jesus and, and, and trusted in him. And then he was talking with the professor, and he said, he says, this is amazing, the gospel's amazing, the truth about Jesus is amazing. I can't believe no one ever told me this before. And he said, you sure no one ever told you this before? He says, I can't believe Martin Luther didn't know about this. And so then he says, how about you go back and read that commentary again? And then he went back, and then he came back to his professor. He says, it's there on every page. It's there on every page. How come I didn't see it? Illumination. The Holy Spirit... See, it's not just that you scratch your head and you say, well, is this concept reasonable? And, and it's that the Holy Spirit does a work in a life. The Holy Spirit supernaturally takes the words of Scripture, takes the, uh, the, uh, like someone else testifying about what God has done in their lives. It takes those type of ingredients and causes them to come alive 
in a heart. And so if you're sharing uh, the truth about Jesus with somebody, you should be praying for them as well. Because you're doing supernatural work. It's not just that the word's on the page. It's that you're trusting that the Holy Spirit will take that kindling and set it aflame. Let's get back to our text here. He says, really, he says, you're turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he goes on and he says these two radical statements. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say it again. If anybody's preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You know what? Paul is, is, uh, is really getting pretty extreme here. Now, he identifies two sources that you, you should not allow to twist your view of the gospel. The first one, he talks about an angel from heaven. So what if you have an, a, a dramatic spiritual experience? A, dramatical, a dramatic spiritual experience that causes you to think, that maybe the gospel's different than it is. Paul is saying, you know what? Even if you had a face-to-face encounter with a being that you believe is an angel, and that angel is saying, hey, the gospel's different. It's, 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 it's not just Jesus, but it's Jesus plus something else. He says, throw that out. Throw that out. He says, don't let that experience reshape how you view the gospel. Because you can have all sorts of experiences, some good, some bad. You don't even always know what the sources are, but I'm going to tell you, that's one where you can know the source is wrong if it's trying to twist the gospel. Then he says something just as radical, I think. He says, not just an angel, but he says, if we are an angel, he's saying... Here I am, Paul, I'm writing you this absolutely stern letter. You cannot change the gospel. You can't compromise the gospel. You can't do anything. The gospel has to stay pure as it is. It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's his work. He did it. It's not us doing something to add to that or or to make it. It's Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And and he's, he's, he's writing this so stern, but he says, if an angel, even an angel talks to you, even if you have some spiritual experience that's wild and over the top, it says you can't change the gospel. It is what it is. If you change the gospel, it becomes no gospel at all. It's not even good news. It's nothing. It has no power. It can't transform. It says, even if I someday come to you and present a different gospel, you got to throw me out on my ear. You gotta throw me out on my ear. Now, this is actually very good leadership. Very good leadership. Do you know that this actually happens? This actually happens. Sometimes you have leaders who they just they're faithful to God, they're teaching the gospel, they're 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 allowing the Bible to measure their lives instead of them measuring the Bible. Like they're just really submitted to God and their and their and their ministry is really good and their leadership is good. And then sometime you reconnect with them like 15, 20, 30 years later, and something got warped. Something got twisted. 
And you're like, what are you teaching now? What are you on about now? What's your treasure now? What's your, what is happening? So, you know what? If you, you have, have a leader and you esteem them and you hold them up and you say they're doing a good work for God and stuff like that, and they come back in the future and they say, hey, you know, I got a whole different take on the gospel. He says, even if it's me, Paul says, so you got to throw it out. You got to throw it out. There's lots of different ways that we can add to the gospel. We can say it's Jesus plus uh, some spiritual experience you got to have, unless you have that. And there's lots of, let me just say this then. A lot of the things that Christians fight about, they fight about, I think, too unnecessarily. And so a lot of it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of beholden to Tim Keller for help pointing this out to me, but let me, just, let me just try to share this idea. Sometimes what we fight about is because we don't trust, or, or we, we're getting things twisted about the gospel. If you know that what Jesus has done for you is enough. There's a peace and a confidence that comes with that. There's a peace and a confidence that comes into your life when you know what Jesus has done is enough for you. If you get away from that, if you forget that, if you drift from that, you lose that peace and that confidence, and now you're going to look for it somewhere else. How am I going to have assurance? If I am not looking to Jesus, if I don't have my eyes fixed on him, if I'm not focused on him as my Savior, how do I have assurance that I'm right with God? Well, now, if I don't come back to this, now I'm going to put my focus somewhere else. Well, how do I know that I'm right with God? Well, maybe if I can be good enough. Maybe if I can perform well enough. Maybe if I can prove to God that I'm a good enough person, which isn't the gospel. So when you get away from the gospel, you lose your confidence. And here's what happens is you begin to bicker and fight. Why? Because now you're proving yourself. And when you start proving yourself, you got to prove yourself against someone else. So I feel insecure. I don't feel assured about my salvation. I'm not talking about me in real life. I'm, this is the illustration, right? I don't feel that way. And so now I'm going to look at somebody else and I'm going to say, well, oh, their church isn't doing things right. Or that's, you know, I, I think they're missing a fine detail there. And I think I'm quite a bit better than them. Why do I need that? Because I lost my confidence because I strayed from the gospel. The closer I get to the gospel, the more I focused on Jesus, the more I'm, I'm realizing he's my all-sufficiency. He's everything I need. And then I have assurance of salvation because of his work. I'm trusting in his work, not in myself, not in my efforts. There's a relaxation that comes into that. And now somebody comes along and they're a little bit different than me. I'm like, yeah, I'm not, not terribly bothered about that. The only area that I need to be uptight about is when people mess with the gospel. Or when my heart messes with the gospel. Paul has an interesting thing that he goes on to say. He says... Uh, let me just find the, the text again here. Oh, great, I put my notes in the wrong order. 
Can we just go to that verse about pleasing people? Let's just read that. It says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, Paul is an interesting, complex guy. He says things about pleasing people that sound absolutely contradictory. Okay? So by reading this, you say, don't please people. Don't be a people pleaser. Right? It's not the gist of what he's saying. Okay, now we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 10, 32. Here it is. It says, don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. What? For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that many may be saved. You say, what is going on? Paul, are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? Um, I was just reading this, and I thought, what's the deal? Is it good to please people, or is it bad to please people? And the answer is, it depends. Isn't that satisfying? I'm going to read you an article from Tim, uh, not Tim Keller. This is actually John Piper who writes this one. And the title of the article is, It's Good to Please People. It's Bad to Please People. That's the title. Life is not simple. So language is not simple. Different situations in life call for different ways of living. The language that describes those differences can be very confusing, just like we had. For example, Paul says he tries to please people, and he doesn't try to please people. It's the same Greek word for please both times, so we can't get out by that method. (laughs) Wise listeners are slow to judge. They assume he's not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He says to the Corinthians... Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, for just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. That's that same verse in a different translation. Then he says to the Galatians, Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. And here is the real-life concrete illustration of both commitments, to please and not to please. This is where it gets even crazier, if you can believe it. When Paul calls Timothy into his service, he had him circumcised. I thought circumcision was bad. It's, it's more complex than that. More nuanced. Hang on. When Paul called Timothy into his service, he had him circumcised. Why? Here's Paul's answer. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew his father was a Greek. In other words, Paul sought to avoid unnecessary stumbling blocks in his evangelism among Jews. He was free to circumcise or not, so he did. In this sense, he sought to please them. But in Jerusalem, I told you it was going to get crazy, when people were requiring circumcision in order to be saved, Paul saw that the very gospel was at stake. So he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. In other words, he did not please those who wanted Titus circumcised. Why didn't he please them? Why didn't he yield? He answers, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So this calls for great gospel discernment. We do not want to put unnecessary obstacles in the way of the gospel. To please or not to please, the answer is 
Yes. And one way we know which is which is by asking, will the gospel be advanced? Will the gospel be compromised? Okay, so some of you are still scratching your heads over it. I did too. I had to read it a few times. Here's my takeaway. So you want other people to know and experience the love of God, the peace of God in their hearts, the transformation of the Spirit of God. You want them to experience the freedom of Christ. You want them, people to experience those things. And so you move in relationship towards these people. You talk with them more. You interact with them more. And, and, and no bones about it, you have something for them that you want them to have. You want good for them. You want the goodness of God in their lives. And so, as you do this, you might find that there's two things that, are ha- two things that could happen. One is, you might change your lifestyle, you might change um, the way you go about things to accommodate them. Now, some of you are saying, whoa, whoa, what does that mean? What are you talking about? I mean, in good ways. So, for example, when Hudson Taylor went to China, he dressed as a Chinese person, which was not normal at the time. Most of the missionaries who went to China at that time, they dressed like British people. But he started wearing Chinese clothing and got criticized for it. But why? He didn't want his clothing to be a stumbling block or to be something that people had to get over before they could hear the gospel. So he tried to be as Chinese as he could, even though he was British. But he tried to be as Chinese as he could to fit in with them. So you might find that in, with friends. So you say, well, uh, you know, my friend, he, he likes certain things. I don't really like them. But I care more about him receiving what God has for him than these other things. And it's totally optional, these other things. I'm not talking about ethical things, you know, you start lying to hang out with a liar or something like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about things that you can change, right? Maybe they're just cultural things, right? I was, I was sitting in the mechanics uh, down at West, one of the Western dealerships. I was sitting there, and they had the big screen TV on, and the World Cup was on, and you know I like soccer. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. This is so good. This is amazing. And they get to this penalty shootout. It's Iceland, and it's uh, not Ghana. It's Nigeria, and it's tense, and the guy's tense. I'm like, oh, he's going to miss. He's going to miss. He's going to miss. And at that moment, I looked around me. Everyone else in the waiting room was not watching the TV. I was like, oh, right, I'm still in Canada. <laughs> are any of you seriously following the World Cup? Put up your hand if you are. Wow. Yeah, like, it's good. I could have you all over to my house. You could sit around my table because that's how few of you there are. <laughs> At that moment, a reality became clear. If God's called me to be a missionary to Canada, I'm going to maybe have to care about the NHL draft. Oh. <laughs> Instead of the World Cup. Oh, I so do not care. I'm sorry. How many of you cared about the NHL draft? Oh, okay. About the same. Maybe it's not sports that's the answer. Maybe it's something totally different. 
But if, you move, if you're moving into relationship with somebody, there's things that you might say, I'm going to accommodate them. I'm going to look to please them, right? You know, you bring your Tim Hortons cup with them, and they say, Tim Hortons, yuck, that stuff's terrible. I only drink Starbucks. You're like, oh, my favorite, okay. Maybe you bring Starbucks the next time. I don't know what you do. But there's probably areas where you're saying, I, is there anything that's a stumbling block that's stopping this person in their relationship with me from getting down to the real thing? Is there anything that's stopping this communication? Is there anything in how I approach them? I'm, I, I don't want anything to be a stumbling block, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek to please them in whichever way I can. And so Paul, when he went to be with Jews, he just said, I'm going to be as Jewish as I can when I hang out with Jews. When he hung out with Greek people, he said, I'm going to be as Greek as I can when I hang out with Greek people. Because at the end of the day, I want to please them so that they can hear the gospel. I want to please them so they can hear the gospel. But here's the thing that Paul would never do. Paul would never say, boy, you know, I can see that the real stumbling block is the gospel itself. Maybe I can change it. Maybe I can twist that a bit to make it more accommodating to people. Paul said, you can never do that because that has no power. See, the ultimate good for my friend is not that I watch the same sports or that I drink the same coffee or that we keep the same schedules or all those things. The ultimate good is that they know that they come to trust Jesus. That's the ultimate good. And so I seek to please them so that God can transform them and they can experience the ultimate good in their lives. So where do we go from here? I want to read you one last scripture from the book of Acts. And we're talking about the gospel. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God in jail. In jail. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Then the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This is the question of all the world religions. What must I do? What must I do? What must I do to be right with God? And all the world religions give an answer. They give an answer. Do this. Here's seven steps. Here's eight principles. Here's a path you can take. Here's, here's, here's these things you can do. And Christianity is different than that. It's different than that. It's like if someone was, if this was a big pool of water and someone was drowning there. And they're just saying, I'm drowning. And they're coughing and they're, they're sputtering and they're going down for the last time. And, and you say, hey, I've got this book. 
on how to swim. I'll just toss it in there with you. And if you follow those principles, you'll be a swimmer. How to swim. No, this is the moment to say the lifeguard is diving in. And God, when he saw us stuck in sin, hopelessly separated from God, a condition that's temporary but might become permanent, he didn't just give us a set of principles. He just didn't give us a, a, a seven things to do. He gave us himself. And Jesus dived into the disordered mess of sinking humanity. And he lived the life we couldn't live. And he died the life, he died the death that we couldn't die because he was the only perfect sacrifice for sin. And he did it for us. And that's why Paul, at the very beginning of this, of this, of this chapter, he just spells out the gospel in a nutshell. He doesn't wait until he gets a long way into his, his message. He just says, Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So what must I do to be saved, the jailer asked. And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust Christ. Trust Christ. Trust Jesus. Trust that what he's done for you is enough. Look to him. Last illustration. In the Old Testament, the Israelites are having not snake dreams, but snake realities. There's poisonous snakes in the camp, and many people are dying. They run to Moses, and they say, what should we do? And Moses goes to God and says, what should we do? And then God gives them a plan. He says, I want you to take the form of a serpent. I want you to put it on a staff, and I want you to stick it in the ground and tell people if they'll just look at it, they'll live. And so here is this, up on a stake is this bronze serpent. And the people look up at the serpent and they are healed. And it's, the story really gains its significance when you read the New Testament. Because all people needed to do there was to look to this symbol and they lived. And in our day and age, we look to Jesus. We say, I'm I'm riddled, I'm riddled with the disease of sin. I'll be separated from God if, I, if nothing changes. And all we call people to do is say, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. And then we pray because we believe that the Holy Spirit can illuminate those words, illuminate the truth of the gospel so that people suddenly get it and they go, oh, I understand it. Oh, I, 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 I realized it. Oh, it became truth that electrified my soul. And I realized I just needed to trust Jesus with my life. Would you stand with me this morning?